blew up the chicken man in Philly last night. They blew up his house, too. Down on the boardwalk, they're looking for a fight. Let's see what them racket boys can do. Trouble busting in from out of state. And the DA can't get no relief. Be a rumble on the promenade. And the gambling commission is hanging on by the skin of its teeth. Anything does, baby, that's a fact. Maybe everything that dies gonna take a back. With your makeup on, take your hair up pretty. Meet me tonight in Atlantic City. I got a job, put some money away. But I got the kind of debts no honest man can pay. So I drew out all I have from the Central Trust. I bought us two tickets and posted it bus. Everything dies, baby, that's a fact. Maybe everything that dies someday comes back. Put your makeup on, put your hair up pretty. Meet me tonight in Atlantic City. Everybody's giving me business about my background. What would you want right behind me here? I'm afraid I'm not a interior decorator. What kind of art? What would you like to see behind me? I'm going to do a little uh, poll here. I don't know. There's something about the blankness of it I kind of like. Like we're talking here, right? We're like we're, we're, we're spinning things out of nothingness, concepts and ideas. We're bouncing them around. It's, it's, a, it's a fragile moment in time. And that background is sort of the, the palette, you know? If there's something there, it seems like it's too overdetermined. You know, like it, 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 it shapes subconsciously for the person watching it what they're going to be responding to. And I don't know if I like that. I kind of like the idea that it's just empty. I mean, I got to say, the options I'm seeing here in the list are a little... Try hard. Soviet, Soviet flag? Really? Really? Have you not gotten anything out of these? Talking about the pointlessness of fetishizing uh, his, uh, irrelevant social formations? Funko Pops. You know what I should do? I should nail a bunch of DVD covers for kids' movies, like from the uh, Elizabeth Warren uh a barbershop, if anyone remembers that. One of the funniest bits of uh, fake uh, campaign shenanigans ever. Uh, if anyone doesn't remember this, during the, uh, during the 2020 campaign, there was a... Uh, there uh, was an attempt to create a Elizabeth Warren barbershop where they showed a bunch of uh, black dudes hanging around in... A, what was clearly a recently rented office space, and to make it appear more authentic, they hung a bunch of DVD covers. DVD covers! Like Peter Rabbit, the, the fucking CGI movie. Uh, maybe the Croods... Honestly, if it was going to be anything, it would be, you know, some cosmic shit, you know, like a, a, a weed alien, you know, or yeah, like a Franz Fazetta thing, something kind of cosmic, nothing too not grounded or political, because uh, that's not really the vibe we're trying to curate here. All right, so I'm settling on a book to do starting next, not next Wednesday, the, the Wednesday after that, uh, for a book club about the German Revolution. 
And I think I'm going to go with at least the beginning of uh, – I just got to make sure it's available because it's – okay. That's Kindleable. That's easy. You can rent it? They have, you can rent Kindles. Wow. Weird. Uh, I don't know. Maybe that's too long. Maybe we'll do like the first quarter of it or something. Uh, the Weimar Republic by Eberhard Kolb. We're going to start reading that. And uh, we'll, like we did with Reconstruction, we'll go through another pivotal turning point that didn't turn to explain how we got where we are. Because I really do feel that we can only understand our moment if we understand it as one of capital triumph, of the defeat of, of socialism as a challenge to capitalism. Now, that doesn't mean that we're doomed. It doesn't mean we have nothing to do. It just means that our... Uh, the the concepts that we have inherited from the left uh, tradition need to be reexamined in a way that we really aren't doing. Instead, what we tend to do is fetishize uh, what, in retrospect, are are a lot of movements that were always circumscribed by the failure. Uh, to achieve the kind of critical mass necessary to challenge capitalism. But that'll be fun. We'll talk about, uh, we'll talk about the SDP because, uh, it is amazing to think that in the country where socialism was always supposed to emerge in meaning the, the place where, the culture, the balance, the cultural, national, uh, and economic balance of capitalism sustained exactly the sort of uh, counter-hegemonic socialist uh, milieu that Marx predicted was, in the end, bourgeoisified out of revolutionary potential before the critical moment occurred. And, you know, if it's interesting enough, we might read the whole thing. We'll see. But uh, because the Weimar, the entire Weimar Republic is, of course, a fascinating period. And, and, and uh, I, I mean, I don't, necess- I don't really think it's terribly um, relevant to the current moment, as we've discussed many times. But I think it is relevant to why we're at the moment we are. Meaning... We had the ingredients for a socialist response to the crisis of capitalism uh, that emerged in Europe in the early 20th century that failed. It failed. And I'd say since the fall of the Soviet Union, we have been living in a in the uh, in the world of capital of, of capitalism triumphant. And that means looking at how we got here, and it means looking at, as I've become more and more fixated on recently, contingency, historical contingency. Because that's the only thing that can rescue us from the horror at the end of history. Because that is the real joke of Fukuyama. You know, people made fun of, people made fun of Fukuyama for 20 years after 9-11 happened. Oh, LOL, uh, history ended? Considering what Fukuyama meant by that, he was basically correct because we might have things like Islamic terrorism and, and uh, you know, crisis is emerging uh, uh, and uh, continual uh, conflicts within and between systems and societies in America, in the world, but they're all totalized within capitalism. Like we are, there, there is no more uh, conflict 
between uh, social orders. There's no more conflict between something other than capitalism, whatever it might be, uh, uh, communism or or pre-capitalist social orders that resisted capitalism being imposed on it. Uh, those are all those have all been defeated. But capitalism, as Marx knew, uh, unchecked will still at some point reach a, po- a, cr- a point of critical and unresolvable crisis because of the contradictions contained within it. Whether or not socialism, as it was understood uh, in the 19th and 20th century, can challenge it, it still has a crisis within itself that has to be, cha- has to be confronted. I mean, it's it's all of our duties as, as human beings to confront uh, the crises that we see around us and that make up our own lives. And the thing about that Cold War with China is, I'm sorry, China is not an alternative to capitalism. You, it might be an alternative. It might be an alternative state structure, and I would I would agree that it has. That, uh, that that Chinese capitalism is a uh, more socialized, I guess, or coordinated, restrained, whatever you want to call it, version of capitalism. Uh, but its essential engine is the same, and the process. The, and you could really say that, like, what distinguishes it from from our like capitalism, the conflict between China and, and Anglo America really is a snake. It's the snake eating its own tail. It's the most advanced end of capitalism, smack dab running into the t- the tail end, the most recent uh, 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 formation of capitalism uh, on literally the other side of the world from where it was uh, originally conceived. And so I really do think you either get con- you either get apocalyptic confrontation if and that's and that will be determined more by resources than anything more by external and exogenous crises created by things like uh, global warming and you know uh, the conflict over re- real like real conflict over resources uh, or it'll be some sort of merger it'll be some sort of leveraged buyout. Because within those systems, there is nothing within any of them that is not capitalism. (laughs) But the thing that we can really take as solace, first is that we're all going to die. Everybody's going to die. So all the really horrible stuff you're worried about, imagining happening, the real monstrosities, you're not going to see them. You're going to die before that. And even the people who have to live in those horrible worlds, they're going to die too. And that's not the worst thing in the world. We've made it the worst thing in the world, but it really isn't. And the world will continue. The worlds will continue. The, the, the eternal universe, the, the, the self-conscious mind that is the universe will still persist. And and on the land, and on land somewhere, there will be some conscious beings who are able to bring together and synthesize uh, the strands of history to, to, to transcend what seems to be the intractable horror of history. Why would you rather your species lives on? You what? Wh- why be specious? Like you, we are. We have like humans. Obviously, we talk about like species being and all that. But like that really is only one level of a process. Like coming into awareness of of humanity as like a, a collective organism is really just one stage. Because that distinction between human and non-human is also as arbitrary as the distinction between an individual person and humanity. 
And I mean, when I really get, when I really get chummed up, I think about the fact that, you know, time moves both backwards and forwards. And the very fact that we're all here, that there is a thing that we're experiencing means that somewhere, someplace, at some time, in some part of the universe, some collective con- contact um, happened. So what's happening with Aaron Rodgers? I've stopped caring about football for a long time. I really just was rooting for Aaron Rodgers to get another Super Bowl because I think he's a really good quarterback. It's really funny. I I actually used to be, as a high schooler, I was super, 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 super into football. Uh, It was an unhealthy thing. You know, I was was a loser. I was was relatively friendless, but I lived in Wisconsin. And uh, football was a was a ritual of of catharsis that I could engage in. And uh, I, I when I was a kid, I saw the Super Bowl where the I saw the Packers win a Super Bowl, and that was I thought, oh my God, I'll never get happier than this. But then the next year, uh, wha- when they went back to play the Broncos, I watched that Super Bowl. I watched the the, the Super Bowl they won uh, against the Patriots in a uh, uh, I, I saw that in a basement with the friends I did have had a great time was very excited uh, thought it was amazing next year I was in a hospital bed uh, with my folks watching it on a TV because I had to have surgery on my spine the next day and I watched them lose, and I just couldn't care. It was like it, – it, it just – I could not invest the, any kind of emotional energy into it. And I think that experience kind of broke me when it came to football. Later on, I did end up having a weird fixation on the Brewers when they were good. But, uh, but I could never really get back into the Packers. And when they won the Super Bowl against the Steelers, it was just like, hey, cool. I didn't really care that much, but I do honestly more than anything. I would like Aaron Rodgers to get uh, what he get his real wish and become Jeopardy host. He should just get rid of football. I only watch soccer at the World Cup. Single the, the elimination format, the nationalism. That's the good stuff. So somebody says you should host Jeopardy. Uh, I. I mean, they won't even, they wouldn't even call me to be on. I have, I have auditioned for Jeopardy three times and I made it to the audition round where like they talk to you and you do the fake game and like you give them your photograph and they give you your phone number and everything three times and I never got a call. I have been pre-COVID. I was a big bar trivia guy, as you can imagine. I would never call it a pub quiz because I'm not uh, pretending to be English. Nothing lower than an American who uses British slang. Just no thank you. 
Somebody's mom is mad at me for some reason. I don't know what I did. I'm sorry. Sorry, mom. Whoever's mom it is. Somebody asked the trip, my, our bar trivia name. When I lived in Milwaukee, we had a team that won, dominated every every play, every time we played at, at this one bar, and we were called the Hezbollahs. I, I thought that was pretty good. My opinion on Cajuns, how, why would I have an opinion on a, 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 an ethnic or, or linguistic group? That's like, isn't that like 19th century shit? Like, what is your, like, oh, yes, they're, they're, they're a choleric people. Uh, the, they're, they're tropic blood. Uh, they seem like they have a good time, I'll say that. With the Zydeco music and the, and the gumbo, seems to be a good time. You, get, you go down there, you get that, you get that good gumbo. Oh, yeah. You go down there. It's good. You get that rule. You put, you got to store that rule going. I will say that New Orleans is, is yeah, one of the only American cities with its own character. I mean, it is astounding when you, if you live in America and you visit our, our cities, how similar they are. They really do have, uh, at this point, a, a template. Like, they really did just start spamming, like, Williamsburg at most mid-sized American cities. New Orleans is it's, its own thing. I do love that... Uh, that Louisiana, apparently, their, like, civic code is based on the, the Code Napoleon and not common law. That rules. Seattle's, I mean, Seattle's fine. Seattle's thing is... A lot of American cities have gorgeous surroundings. Like they have, they have beautiful natural environments, and some of them have interesting architecture. But for the most part, they're like the stuff in them is is very like it's from a box. And I'd say, like at this point, Seattle definitely is like that, you know, because the tech money, tech like tech money is colonizing urban areas because that's the only money there is. Thank you. And of course, that money just exists to do things like uh, like dominate urban spaces. It's not actually productive, which is the like I said in the last stream, the real the real sign that you know as as totalizing in the, as the system appears, something on the horizon, either horrifying or liberatory, or most likely a combination of both, is on the horizon because the, there is nowhere to put there's nowhere to get profit. There's nowhere to get profit in the system. Which was what Marx predicted would happen. But what we don't have is a working class mobilized to take the productive forces created by capitalism and socialize their products. You know, it's a good historic... Uh, speaking of New Orleans, though, you know, it's a good... Uh, alternate history idea is after Napoleon was uh, defeated, he was offered asylum in uh, New Orleans. And he said, he decided to say, he decided to not do it. And I always wonder like, what if Napoleon comes to the U S like how much of a headache would that have been for the American government? And what would he have done? But, you know, he, he had his fucking chance. He had his chance. He could have allied with Toussaint, and he fucked it up. He fucked up!
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what if Napoleon moves to the United States? Another good one. What if Marx moves to the United States? Because Marx and Engels wanted to go to Texas after the 48 revolution. And it's not even like Marx decided not to go. He needed, because uh, he was in exile from Prussian authorities, and they denied his uh, submission for a passport, so he couldn't go. The horror, the thing that I like, that seems like it might be cool, but I, I imagine him getting fucking hung by the Confederates, like a bunch of the other uh, German uh, Unionists uh, at the beginning of the war. The Nuensis Massacre, for example. Is this making a bunch of noise? Are people having like, are people having issues because this is going by the, by this the thing? Nobody. The guy didn't tell me why his mom's mad at you. Me, by the way, I want to know. If you're still in here, please tell me why your mother is mad at me. <laughs> I can't believe my, Andrew Yang is going to be the next mayor of New York. That's so perfect. It really, it does show that we've reached just total critical exhaustion with politics. And there's a civil war shooter. Wait a minute. So like first person, like you got a musket and then you got to reload it. And then you shoot it again, like Call of Duty. That seems like the single worst way to do Civil War combat in a video game. So you're just like a, a private... Or are you like, are you organizing at like what, at like the, the, the company level or the regimental level? What is it? Because I think a game, a game from like the, the a Civil War game from the position of like a captain or a colonel of a regiment, I think could be interesting. Because it seems like that is like the level of, of size of, of unit for that war that would be the most interesting to deal with. Like if it's too big, then, you know, you might as well be playing, uh, uh, you know, any other of those big strategy games, but too small. And it's like, what the fuck are you even doing? I always felt, cause I've, I've, I've tried to play those civil war games where you're like clicking on the units and moving them. And it feels a little cold. I feel like, like, like a regimental or company would be a better, better unit to bet, to fight from. But who am I kidding? I'm not going to play any video games. I've never really found a video game style that I've really enjoyed. Like I, uh, shooters to me are either, uh, too chaotic or tedious. Uh, the, the, like even the board game click things are, it's too much stuff. It's weird. I just, it's not, it's like, it's a, it's at this point, it is a universal, uh, pastime for people, but I just have never been able to find one that made me want to keep playing it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Twitter is my game. 
Twitter is the video game I play, although I got to say I'm on it much less. I know I told people to tell me to log off, and I, I haven't completely, but I don't tweet nearly as much as I used to. I don't get the, the endorphins anymore. I do scroll more than I wish I did, but part of that is just I do feel this weird, frankly, I mean, you know, it is a professional obligation to sort of swish through the the, the, the currents, although, you know, it's also just, it's at this point an ingrained uh, com- an ingrained habit. But yeah, like I've even lost like the gamification part of Twitter. I am not even really even gamifying it anymore because I'm no longer, you know, doing the, uh, the engagement farming that I used to subconsciously. I don't know. Someone's asked about prehistory. I wish I knew more. I'm going to start listening to the Patrick Wyman series that he's doing on Tides of History about prehistory. Do I think it's possible for Biden to be primary? I mean, it's possible in that someone could primary him, obviously, but do you mean he could be defeated for the nomination? Obviously, no. Uh, could it be like a productive use of time? I also kind of doubt. I think national politics is done for. And I know some people are mad at me for saying that because, well, you guys cared so much about it. And it's like, yeah. We thought things were one way, and then, as Marlowe pointed out, uh, they're another way. And we've been having to deal with the reality of that. And that, that we all have to deal with that. We all have to deal with the world of we understand it not conforming to our understanding and our expectation of it. And I think what a lot of people who, who, who hold on to partisan politics, who decide we're going to that uh, we're going to like stake out the traitors who who let us down this path path or we're going to uh, own our our enemies by it, uh, rooting for the republicans instead are people who just can't give up on the idea that there is something meaningful that there is something uh uh There is some agency to engaging in, in electoral politics. And like retrospectively, I now realize that a lot of what we thought mattered didn't matter. But we had to learn. We had to learn. And I think that is one of the big uh, unexamined blind spots of a lot of radical leftists is that they uh, – demand that people accept their maximalist positions on the need for revolution on the strength of their argument for them. But arguments aren't what make people believe things. Arguments are not what make people believe things. Experience is what makes people believe things. And so somebody tells you, what are you bothering with electoral politics for? You should be picking up a gun. Well, first of all, you're not picking up a gun. Second of all, I might die. Why would I want to do that? I could vote instead. They have to, you have to experience it. You have to try and and fail and then reassess.
The yellow Minerva flies at dusk, indeed. The stuff with the PRO Act and, and the fact that you got Manchin on board and Biden is supporting it, it's interesting. It's certainly more than Obama did with card check in 2008, where he said during the campaign, I'll support it, and then they just let it die without really any kind of fanfare in the Senate. And now they're saying, now you got Biden supporting PRO Act. I mean, what is the difference there? The difference, one of the big differences is that Obama had 60 votes in the Senate, and if he had made uh, card check a priority, uh, it would have actually been something that might have passed. Here, with a 50-50 Senate and, uh, and a nice diffusion of responsibility between Warner and uh, Kristen Cinema and Mark Kelly, you can have a guy like Manchin who is taking heat for things like $15 minimum wage come out in favor of the PRO Act with no expectation that it will pass. Like the real problem is, is that there is no there is no mechanism to compel these people to do anything. So they're only going to pass the PRO Act if they find it in their interest to. And as currently constructed, there's no way that I see the Democratic Party imagining its interest to be the passage of the PRO Act. Because at this point, it is far more captured by business interests than it is by uh, organized labor, which is, of course, you know, a shadow of its former self. And, and yes, the PRO Act could change that, but it, does, it, it, it hasn't changed it yet. There isn't the influence yet to, to push it forward. I have eaten, someone asked weirdly if I've eaten alligator. I had alligator at a state fair, the Wisconsin State Fair, I believe it was. I have been to three state fairs, I believe. I've been to a number of Wisconsin state fairs, obviously, the Minnesota State Fair, and a couple years ago, uh, the Iowa State Fair. They're always uh, delightful uh, Dionysian rituals. And yeah, sometimes you can get exotic foods. I remember I got some fried alligator. I don't even remember what it tasted like. State fairs are not free to enter. You got to pay. They're very expensive. This is interesting. How can we be confident something historically contingent will emerge that we can plug into? We can't be. We can't be confident of anything. We can't be confident of anything. That is one thing that I become more and more convinced of as time passes is that confidence, which is something that absolutely uh, dominated my mind for years and and really – hindered me in a lot of ways and, and made me uh, a, a frightened and uh, and cowardly person is uh, was this fixation on, on feeling confident about something, about feeling like something was real before I took a step. Uh, and I realize now, hopefully not, you know, not too late because I'm still here, that that we we have we, we can only have confidence in in uh, we can't have confidence in anything abstract. Confidence meaning like setting our course on its continuation. We can only have confidence in things that are concrete in our lives. And a lot of us, I know I often get dominated by, by a neurotic fixation on uh, like 
the veracity of of institutions and concepts and and um, and persistent states that is irrelevant to that are irrelevant to us uh, and leave us unequipped to deal with the world in front of us because that that lack of that that anxiety about confidence that the anxiety about about the certainty of the persistence of things robs us of our uh of our focus and our and our our ability to be present so i would say there is i have no confidence that something will emerge that we can latch onto but i do know i know from my life that uh that such contingency is possible that there is nothing else that I can wait for or rely on and that I have to operate day to day for the assumption that even if this thing won't materialize, that I, it is my duty to myself and to the world and to the people around me to be ready for it. And then if it doesn't happen, what if it doesn't happen? Well, what have you lost? The only thing you've lost is neurosis. Is Raleigh Fingers the best name for a pitcher? That's a good question. Raleigh Fingers is a good pitcher's name. The Brewers, those early 80s Brewers had a bunch of good pitcher's names. Pete Vukovic was another great pitcher's name. Goose Gossage, very good. Catfish Hunter. Uh, Vita Blue, oh my God. That's such a good one. Mark Fidrich, Satchel Page. Not a huge fan of him, but Dennis Eckersley has like a musicality to it. That's really cool. Lefty Grove. Dizzy Dean. So this is the kind of baseball uh, fan I was. Like when I was a little kid, I didn't know how to play baseball. I was very uncoordinated. I was on a soft I was the second baseman on a softball team that lost every game it played. But I had a I was hugely uh, well-read on uh, baseball history and facts and shit. Mordecai Three Finger Brown. God, Randy Johnson. Randy Johnson might be the best. He's not. He's not because Pedro Martinez is the greatest pure pitcher of all time, in my opinion. Uh, But Randy Johnson is probably the best. Doc Ellis, great name. Probably the best left-handed pitcher of all time, and he's got one of the most like boring ass names ever. Nolan Ryan is honestly a great pitcher or a great name. Craig Maddox is fine. But come on, Randy fucking Johnson, get out of here. Brett Saberhagen, Oral Hirschheiser, Burt Blylevin. These are all fantastic. Uh, Fernando Valenzuela. Bill Spaceman Lee. Bill Lee isn't too good, but you throw Spaceman in there. Huh. Hoyt Wilhelm, knuckleballer. Clayton Kershaw isn't really like that cool of a name by itself, but it is nice because it makes him seem like a Civil War general. Oil Can Boyd. That's a good one. Ferguson Jenkins. Yes, very good. Madison Bumgardner, excellent. Grover Cleveland Alexander. Sandy Koufax, not bad. Some people are naming non-pitchers, and this is annoying to me. Carlos Zambrano, pretty good. 
Old Haas Radborn. Another great one. Just literally naming baseball players here. But ugh. I don't know how you don't like baseball. I guess it's for nerds. Baseball's for nerds at the end of the day. Because it's got the most history. It's got all the names. It's just you can, like, swirl it around like a snifter of brandy. But, yes, like, as a thing to watch, of course it's boring. But that's the whole point is that you can watch it and be thinking about all this other stuff. And the context makes it interesting. Adios. Great one. Ben Sheets. Ben Sheets, man. The Brewers really, they never gave him a team worthy of his talent. He was a, he should have won at least one Cy Young. But that was before people realized that wins weren't real. Chief Bender. That's a good one. Daisuke Natsuzaka, that was a great one. Hideo Nomo. John Smoltz sounded like someone taking a dump. C.C. Sabatia, oh man. Throwing me back to the to the 2010 Brewers. That was a hell of a team. That was probably the last time I really cared about baseball. Was uh, were those were those Brewer teams? Or that was 2008. Joba Chamberlain. That's another good one. Bartolo Colon. Also good. Louis Tiant, yes. Juan Marichal, who famously uh, went beast mode on a catcher when he was uh, batting. He he believed uh, he thought that a catcher threw the ball back like nicked his ear, and he just went insane and started hitting the fucking catcher with a bat. Wild. It's funny, the, the, the DH debate has like super hyper partisans on both sides. And it's honestly, I, can, I honestly can see both sides of that because there is something elegant about the idea of a nine-person team, nine guys on the field, nine buys bat. But then there is something uh, also, I mean, like the fact that you've got a guy like Otani with the Angels, right? He couldn't play for the National League and bat as much as he pitches the way that he can with the DH. And like a guy, a, a, a two-way player like him, there should be a, a mechanism to allow him to, to do his thing. And really, the DH is the only thing that allows that to, to happen. I kind of like the idea of the fact that there's one league with one and one with the other. I, I, I always thought that was kind of neat. But what's ruined it is that they broke down the dividing line between the leagues. When I was a kid, the fucking umpires had hats that said AL or NL on them, and they never played each other. Now they're all smushed together, and eventually you're going to have a total – by definition, everything has to get squished, squished together into one thing. I mean, if I had my way, honestly, people talk about, like, what to do with uh, – with uh, you know, pace of play and, and, and making it more interesting. I think the way they're going is they're going to shorten the games, they're going to shorten the season, and they're going to extend the playoffs. They're going to make it like basketball. And, you know, that's inevitable. There's no point arguing about it. But if you're going to keep a 162-game season, I really do think that with that many games played, you should have as little postseason contingency as possible. You have played 162 games. You know who the best teams are. So have the two best teams play. No, no, play, no playoffs at all. Like the old Pettit days, 162 games at the end of it, the best 
record of the American League and the best record of the National League play a nine-game World Series. That would be my preference. But if they're going to make it like a fucking 100-game season or whatever and have half the teams in there, fine, whatever. But you have to short you have to shorten the season if you do that because it's absurd. Why are you playing 162 games? Why are you playing that many games? Because the whole point of that is to have the numbers like clear out the contingency and the randomness and show you the actual fucking skill. Like like pan through the gold for the real shit. And then, okay, now have them play. Having like three game season, three uh, game playoff seasons after 162 games to me is absurd. Because how the hell, you don't know anything out of that. It's, it's totally random at that point. Yeah, baseball has too many games for me to follow it like basketball. That is why if they're going to expand the playoffs, they need to shorten the regular season. Shorten the season, extend the playoffs, or leave the season the way it is and get rid of the playoffs. That, those, that, those are the two options as I see them. Of course, I'm not totally unbiased here because in 2011, the Brewers, clearly the best team in the National League Central, by far, were defeated by the fucking, what, 90 win or something like that? St. Louis Cardinals in the playoffs? And then they got to go to the fucking World Series? Where they also beat, through flukes, another superior team? Those motherfuckers? The only real abiding emotion I have related to any sport isn't love for any team. It is hatred for the Cardinals. I mean, at this point, I don't really even care about the Brewers. Although, I mean, hell, if they like really tore into it, I would start caring again. But all I really have is hatred for the Cardinals. So I have the fucking... Have the, the earth open up and swallow them. There's a book about uh, college football called To Hate Like This Is To Be Happy Forever. And I do think that that gets at something very, very important about sports, which is that the hatred of the enemy is much more uh, deeply felt than the love of of the team that you root for. And I think that extends to a lot of other things. (laughs) Talk about jouissance. Talk about motherfucking jouissance. I would love to talk to David Roth about baseball, but I don't think anybody else knows anything. No, nobody else is a baseball fan on the show. Felix just likes fighting sports. I have to say that uh, to this day, I'm, I'm proud of myself that uh, in 2001, when uh, the Yankees were in the World Series against the the absolutely flavorless uh, expansion dog shit Diamondbacks, and like America was rooting for the Yankees after 9/11, uh, I was absolutely rooting for the fucking Diamondbacks, and I was when Craig Council uh, won that game, I was out of my chair. Because fuck the Yankees forever.
All right, Gonzalez. What did, what, council was there, though, right? Was council the run that came in? Council was on that team, right? Can't remember. All I know is I was happy when it happened. Oh, yeah, he scored the run. Yeah, okay. Yeah, he scored the one for the Marlins and the Diamondbacks, two dog shit expansion teams that shouldn't exist. Now, the one sport I would like to watch, but I can't because there's no American version, is probably rugby. Because at this point, football is just, except for, you know, the playoffs and shit, it's just, there's, it's too, it's too glacial. It's amazing how people talk about how baseball is boring and then they watch football. The best baseball movie is Major League. That's a question with an easy one, uh, unarguable answer. Major League, best baseball movie of all time. There's a red fire burning on the Cuyahoga River. Rolling into Cleveland to the lake. That was shot at uh, Old County Stadium in Milwaukee. The Lord can make you tumble. The Lord can make you turn. The Lord can make you overflow. But the Lord can't make you burn. It's funny. Uh, I remember reading Moneyball and be devouring it and, and feeling like, oh, my God, this is amazing. But you look back on it now, and it's just another brick in the wall of turning everybody uh, who watches the game into, into management. It turns and, – and, you know, that's not just the fault of, statist- of uh, sabermetrics and all that, but the instinctual side, the instinctual uh, sports fan – uh, uh, identification in the inherently um, conflictual relationship between players and owners is always owners. It's always going to be owners because you're a fan of the team, right? Has anyone ever tell me I look like Philip Seymour Hoffman? We did a live show in L.A. Uh, two years ago, I think it was at a uh, it was at a church. It was at a, a church that was being renovated, and to pay for the renovation, they had were having uh, public. They were having events, you know, and so they were getting a share. They were getting like a fee for for hosting events. So we did this show in this church, and everyone was at pews. And apparently people who were there said the sound was absolutely dog shit. Nobody could hear us. Uh, but the chip tickets were cheap. Um, and afterwards, the wife of the deacon who had helped us set up stopped me on the stairs as we were leaving the church and said, you know, you look just like that Philip Seymour. She was like 55 years old. You look just like that Philip Seymour Hoffman. He was still alive at that point, so thank you very much for the because she thought you meant dead. You looked dead, or maybe he was dead. Shit, maybe she owned me that way. When did he die? 
2014. So he was dead by then. All right, she was owning me. Congratulations. She was owning the shit out of me. Fuck. Well, congratulations. I got owned. No, I won't do any heroin. Not a fan of any opiates. Never been. No thank you. Uh Uh-uh. Psychedelics? Yes, of course. Crucial. Part of a balanced diet. Uh, no, no, no opiates for me. Ketamine is a psychedelic, I would say, or dissociative, whatever you want to call it. It's fine. I would do ayahuasca. I've never huffed gas like Philip Seymour Hoffman in Love Lies, I know. I mean, I've obviously, you know, smelled gas when I was pumping it and been like, oh, that smells nice. I've never done the isolation tank, the John Lilly thing, and I kind of want to. One of these days, I'm going to get in the. I'm going to get in the tank. I mean, of course, I'd go on Joe Rogan. Obviously. Why would I want to talk to 10 million of the most soft-minded people on earth? You get in there and you just get to like fucking Play-Doh their brains. Like fucking Carl Spackler and Caddyshack with the plastic explosive. Of course I would do that. Oh, the snortable weed. All right, I, I'm going to go in a second. This is the last thing I'll talk about. I just saw that yesterday, the thing about the snorty, snortable weed. And that is absolutely fascinating to me. So presumably this is people who want to feel something edgy about doing co- doing weed now that weed, weed is uh, been domesticated. And so the way that they've decided to do that is to – Pretend weed is cocaine. And to me, that is amazing. I don't know what kind of, what it would give you. Yeah, like, are are you going to start, like, boiling weed over a spoon and then, like, injecting dabs? Like, at a certain point, you just have to accept, okay, weed is, uh, is normie shit now. Weed is basically Budweiser. Do you like doing it? Then do it. If you don't, don't. Maybe now you just have to confront that your subcultural relationship to it can't persist. But some people say, no, 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 no. Confront the 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 uh, confront what goes into my preferences and like maybe tease out what I really am going for here. No, 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 no. I would much, much rather. Uh, just pretend and bang out some fucking uh, some rails of of weed. You got to imagine that a lot of like uh, moms who got made fun of for saying things like "Are you snorting weed?" can now vindicate, be vindicated, and say, "See, you can snort weed." If somebody offered it to me, I would try it, though, of course, just to see what the fuck that 
like, what would that do? Like, is it an instantaneous thing? Is it like an edible? I mean, presumably, like, because it's right there, it would, like, hit your brain very quickly. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not buying any, though, that's for sure. Yeah, weed suppositories, that's next. Stuff it up your ass. You got to figure that the time release effect of that would be very good. Okay, so see you guys next week. And then I think the next week, the week after next week, I'll try to do, once again, I don't know what the assignment will be because I haven't really looked at the book yet. I'll put it on Twitter probably. Week after next week, we'll, I'll start talking about the beginning of uh, Kolb's book, The Weimar Republic. And we'll figure out, hey, what the hell is going on with uh, those guys? You have this huge, robust, self-organized uh, labor movement, and you've got uh, this crisis here at the end of World War One. What, 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 what happened? And we'll find out, or we'll at least try to figure it out. At least what we'll try to do is tell a story that can be useful, because that's all we can ever really do. We're not going to fucking know anything. We can never know anything. We can tell stories to ourselves that have use. All right. Bye-bye.